What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. presidency of Andrew Jackson, a man named George Wilson robbed a federal payroll and killed a guard in the process, and he was found guilty of murder uh, and was sentenced to death by hanging. But because of public sentiment against capital punishment, there began this movement to try to get uh, the president at that time to pardon him. And and after a lot of effort, finally, President Jackson intervened uh, and offered a presidential pardon. But amazingly, Wilson refused the pardon. Now, this never happened before, and so it went to the Supreme Court, and they said, well, what would he do with this? You know, the president gave him a pardon, but the guy doesn't want it. So this is the Supreme Court's decision. Justice John Marshall wrote this. A pardon is a parchment whose only value must be determined by the receiver of the pardon. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives to it. A pardon must not only be granted, it must be accepted. George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do so, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. Because George Wilson would not accept the presidential pardon that was offered to him, He would now have to not pay for his crime. He decided, you know what, I'm not going to accept that. And because of that, he was hung. He had to pay the punishment for his crime. In Romans chapter 9, we looked at the past election of Israel. We saw God's sovereignty in choosing who he desires to choose. And the main thing that Paul revealed that God chose, it was just kind of this build up to the conclusion was, God chose not only to give salvation to the Jews, but also to offer it to the Gentiles. Well, here in Romans chapter 10, we're going to see Israel's present rejection. And we're going to see man's responsibility to choose whether or not he will accept what God has done or reject it. You see, God, in the same sense of you know the president offering that pardon, he says, you know what, because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, because he took your sin, because he paid the punishment for you, I can offer you a pardon. I can make it so that you don't have to pay for your sin because I've done it on your behalf. Do you accept that? Now the choice is ours. And we can, like Wilson, say, no, I'm not going to accept what you've done. And then God says, well, then fine. You will then have to pay the punishment for your crime. Either Jesus pays for it, or you do. And if you accept what Jesus has done, you will be pardoned. And if you reject what Jesus has done, you will pay for it yourself. So chapter 9 deals with the sovereignty of God. But now we have the other side in chapter 10 of the responsibility of man to make a choice based on the fact that God has offered salvation to both Jew and Gentile. Now, the Jews would be struggling with Paul is sharing here, and something that he shared, you know, at the very end of chapter 9 would have been the most difficult at all. They wouldn't like the idea that salvation was given also to the Gentiles. They thought, no, that should just be something that's for us. But Paul goes on to say, you know what, as salvation has been offered by faith through Jesus Christ, the Gentiles, for the most part, and the Jews, for the most part, have responded differently. The Gentiles, they've accepted it by faith. They put their faith in Jesus and received salvation. The nation of Israel, for the most part, they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And they say, you know what? We are going to be righteous through the works of the law. That's what's going to save us. That's what we're going to depend on. We're going to put our faith in the works of the law, what we do to earn salvation versus putting our faith in Jesus and what he's done. And so Paul says, hey, The reason the nation of Israel, for the most part, is not saved is because they uh, rejected God's offer of salvation through faith in Jesus. And the reason these Gentiles are saved 
is because they have accepted God's offer of salvation through Jesus. So the Jews, they really don't understand how to be saved. They don't understand how to become righteous. They're they're looking for the wrong way for that to happen. And so Paul now wants them to understand something very important. As he transitions now into chapter 10, he's going to share a lot about salvation. Actually, he's going to share five important things. First is the need to pray for salvation. Second, the source of salvation. Third, how to receive it. Fourth, the scope, who is it given to. And then finally, the need to preach salvation. These five points will reveal to Israel their responsibility to put their faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And Paul's going to end this chapter with the sad news. Something that he's already revealed, but he's going to reveal it again. And this time he's going to use the Old Testament to say, Hey, it was prophesied long ago that you guys would reject Jesus is your Messiah. The reality is, all this has been done. Salvation has been offered. It's a wonderful truth. The good news is there. Israel has heard it. But unfortunately, they have chosen not to accept it. They have chosen to reject it. You know, chapter 10 is very applicable to us because it shares two very important things about salvation. First is the responsibility of each individual to choose whether they will accept what Christ has done for them, or whether they're going to reject it. Now you think, well, I've already accepted that, so I guess this chapter is irrelevant to me. No, it's not, because there's another thing that this chapter is going to reveal, and that is the importance of those who already have chosen Christ, those who are believers in Jesus Christ. We now have a responsibility to get the message of the gospel out to those who haven't. And Paul's going to give very good reasons for that and why that is so important. So this is a very important and challenging chapter And Paul's going to start here in verse 1, sharing something that's so essential if we truly want to see people come to salvation. Notice what he says, Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Paul just shared at the end of chapter 9, the Gentiles are being saved because they put their faith in Jesus, and the Jews, for the most part, are not because they have rejected Jesus. But just as he started chapter 9 with sorrow and grief because the nation of Israel has rejected Jesus, he starts chapter 10 as well. My desire, my heart's longing is for Israel to be saved. Last chapter, he made it so clear that I would be accursed if that could make Israel saved. I mean, he's desperate for them to come to salvation. He has this huge desire for that. And I'm sure for those of you who have already placed your faith in Jesus, if I were to interview you and ask you, there's probably many people on your heart that you have a desire to see come to salvation. Family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, people that you love, people that you know are lost, they have not accepted Jesus Christ, and within you there is this desire, this longing to see them come to Christ. Like Paul had a longing and desire to see the Jews come to Christ, but notice it didn't just stop there. And I think that's the problem for many of us. We have this feeling, this desire, oh, I'd love to see so-and-so get saved. But that's kind of where it ends. I just kind of have this feeling that I don't really do much with. But notice here that Paul not only has this desire, but that desire is seen in a very specific action that is so important for us to understand if we truly want to see those we love get saved. He didn't just have a desire, he also prayed. He realized, hey, I want to see these people come to Jesus in my prayer. Regular prayer to God is that Israel would be saved. The first important thing concerning salvation that I want you to take note of is we need to pray for people's salvation. You know, we share, we're going to talk about the importance of the gospel and getting it out there, but preceding that, the most important thing you can do is pray. You know, the gospel is a spiritual message, and there's a hardness of people's hearts so often. There's an attempt by the enemy to keep them blind to the truth of the gospel. And so prayer is that preparatory thing that helps people be ready for the truth of the gospel. And so often we just go out and we share or we do this or that, and we neglect something so vital. We need to pray. We need to pray for these people. We need to pray for God to soften their heart, for God to open their mind, for God to prepare them for the good news of 
the gospel. Because no matter how well you communicate the gospel, if they're not ready, they're not going to accept it. And prayer is something that's so important. And let me say something else about prayer that I have learned over the years of my own life, and probably you have as well. You pray for things that you care about. Family members who are sick, you pray for them. Some person that you randomly don't know across the world, you're probably not praying for them. Why? Because you don't really care about them like you do your family. There are certain issues in the world. There are certain things that go on where you're like, I really care about that. And because of that, I pray. And the conviction that I have on something like this is what it reveals. And then we don't want to say it. But I think there's a reality if you search your heart that oftentimes when it comes to lost people, we don't care. Oh, what do you mean we don't care? Well, it's shown in our actions. If all we have is some kind of feeling, but we don't pray, we don't reach out, we don't do anything to reach them, do we really care? Or do we really care very much? I think a lack of prayer reveals a lack of care. And so if we truly want to be those who reach people with the gospel, let's ask that the Lord would give us his heart, that we would truly care that those around us here are lost, that those through the world are lost, and that we would spend time Investing in prayer for the Lord to move so that they could come to know him. The second important thing that Paul shares with us concerning salvation is the source of salvation. And this is one of the big problems that Israel had. And unfortunately, it's a big problem today. Where does it come from? How do I receive righteousness? How do I receive salvation? What's the source? Well, Paul's going to show the problem that Israel had starting here in verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul says, you know what, I have witnessed something concerning Israel. They have a great zeal for God. And this is a positive thing. They have a zeal for God, but there's also a negative in that zeal. It's not according to knowledge. And Paul could speak of this in someone who actually knew it, because that's what he was. Before he came to know Christ, this is him. I mean, this is his description. A zealous man for God who was Jewish, but not according to knowledge. Actually, when Paul in Philippians, he gives this description of his credentials in Judaism. You know, how he was superior to so many others in Judaism. And I want you to notice something that he says about himself. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3 of Philippians says, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Paul says, I had so much zeal for God, I was willing to kill Christians. I persecuted the church. In the book of Acts, we see this zeal of like, I believe Christianity is wrong. I believe it's against God. And I'm so zealous for God that I will murder these people. I will imprison these people. I will do whatever it takes to protect Judaism for what I feel to be the threat of Christianity. He had a zeal for God, but Paul's problem was it wasn't according to knowledge. He was wrong. Christianity wasn't a threat. Christianity was the truth. That was the way. And he missed it. But notice what he goes on to say about this zeal and the continual uh, description of his credentials in Philippians 3, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul realized that in his own credentials, in what he did in Judaism, in his own religious efforts, he was trying to gain righteousness by keeping the law. I'm going to earn it. I'm going to work for it. I'm going to do something to achieve righteousness on my own. But Paul wasn't able to gain righteousness because none of us can obtain righteousness by our works. And once Paul's knowledge of how to obtain righteousness changed, once he understand the true way to do it, it's not by trying to do the works of the law, but it's by faith in Jesus Christ. Notice what he says about his old credentials, what he used to boast and what he used to think were so good about his life. I count all of my great credentials as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having my own righteousness, but having a righteousness which is from God through faith. So Paul has been in the situation that he says, I know you Israelites have a zeal for God, but the problem is, it's not according to knowledge. I've been there. I was that guy. I had that zeal, and I missed where righteousness comes from. And that's why Paul goes on to say in verses 3 through 5 of Romans 10, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. So this is Israel's problem. Oh, you guys are zealous for God, and zeal for God's a good thing, but only if it's connected with proper knowledge. You have this zeal, you're pursuing righteousness in an improper way. You think you're going to gain it through the works of the law, but you can only receive it through faith in Jesus. You see, the Israelites didn't understand the source of righteousness. Where does it come from? How do I attain it? Well, it's not the works of the law. That's not the source. The source is what Jesus Christ has done for us and placing our faith in that. And that's why in verses 4 and 5, Paul goes on to help them understand the importance of understanding this truth. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What Paul is saying here is that when you accept that Jesus perfectly lived the law, he kept it. None of us ever did, but Jesus did. And then he died on the cross for every single time that you and I have failed to keep the law. When you and I have sinned by not keeping the law. So Jesus kept it perfectly. He died for the fact that we have not done it. And ultimately, he is the end of the law for righteousness to you and to me. It's not saying that the law ends and, oh, we don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments. No, our relationship to God, trying to relate to him based on the law, trying to be righteous by doing the law, that has ended when we place our faith in Jesus. Because now our relationship with God is based on faith in Jesus. It's not based on the works of the law. And this is what Paul's saying is, hey, it ends. You put your faith in Jesus and that relationship of working your way to try to obtain righteousness from God is over. Because Jesus has done all the work. You just got to trust in what he has done for you. The problem with most of the Israelites is they did not accept Jesus and they were still trying to relate to God based on the works of the law. They thought, no, no, we're going to be righteous by doing this, this, and this. And that's what's going to make us right before the Lord. Now, the reason this is so important to understand is because what Paul reveals in verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. This is something we looked at back in the sin section of uh, Romans, that ultimately if you want to try to live by the law, what the Old Testament clearly says is that you have to do it, and you have to do it perfectly. If you want to be righteous based on the law, the law is God's perfect standard. If you want to be righteous by that, then you need to be perfect. And if you're not perfect, then the law could never make you righteous. But Paul's already revealed all the sin to fall short of the glory of God. None of us have obtained perfection. That's the problem. That's why the law can never save us, because the only way the law can give righteousness to you is if you were perfect and kept it perfectly. But Paul wants them to understand, you can't. That's the bad news for you. So why are you trying to receive righteousness that way? You'll never attain it. There's only one way to get it, by placing your faith in the work that Jesus Christ has done for you. Well, now Paul is going to use the Old Testament to help clarify the difference between righteousness from the law and righteousness from faith in Christ, verses 6 through 8. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. The righteousness of faith is based on faith in Jesus. And Paul's making it very clear. You don't have to work in order to 
receive it. It's not as if we have to ascend into heaven and bring Christ down to earth, or we have to descend into the abyss and bring Christ up from the grave. There's not this great work that we have to do. And it's interesting that he chooses those two illustrations and he's quoting the Old Testament because those both speak of the two most important things that we celebrate as Christians. The incarnation, God becoming man, leaving heaven and coming to earth, we don't bring him down. He came down on his own accord because he loves us. We couldn't bring him. He had to do it on his own. And guess what? The other thing that we celebrate is the resurrection. God raised Jesus from the dead. We don't go into the abyss and bring Jesus up from the dead. No, God raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul bringing this reality of the only way to be saved is to trust in the work that God has already done, not some work that you seek to do on your own in order to receive righteousness from him. Righteousness is something done for us, not something we do ourselves. And this is what the nation of Israel was ultimately ignorant of. Oh, you got zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You guys are ignorant. No one likes to be told that, but that's the reality of where the Israelites were. And sadly, it's the reality of where so many people are today who have no connection to being a Jew. But they still believe the same thing. Righteousness comes through what I do. You ask most anybody, you know, why would God let you into heaven? Well, I'm a good person. My good outweighs my bad. Because of the good things I've done, God's going to accept me. This is a common thought that I will be made right before God based on my works. Not something unique to the nation of Israel. Sadly, something that so many people believe. What Paul's trying to help us see is, you might be zealous for God, you might be trying to get right with God, but if it's not according to knowledge, not according to the way that God has determined it shall be done, then all that effort is futile. All that work is nothing. There's only one way to receive it, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. The second important thing concerning salvation that I want you to take note of is the source of righteousness is faith in Jesus, not the works of the law. You and I need to know that personally. We need to know where the source is. How do we obtain righteousness? Faith in Jesus is the only way, not by what I do. But once we know this, don't keep that knowledge to yourself. Let other people know this who are ignorant like the Jews were, because there's plenty of them. Plenty of people who are zealous, plenty of people who want to be right with God, and plenty of people who are ignorant to the truth of how to do it. Oh, it's through what I do. No, let me tell you, it's through faith in the work that Jesus has done for you. That's what Paul did. That's why he says, the word of faith that we preach. Paul was faithful to share with people how to become saved. And you know what? Almost every place he went, the first destination he would try to find is a synagogue. Why? He first went to the Jews. He's desperate to see them get saved. He was regularly sharing with them. I want you to know how to be right with God, how to obtain righteousness through faith in Jesus. And now he's going to share with us the third important thing, which is how to receive salvation. Oh, they need to know that because how are they going to accept it? Well, Paul shares with us some wonderful truths in verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Paul here shares two things that we must believe, we must accept, in order to be saved. The first thing we're told is we must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, when most people hear this word confess, there's often this concept of, you know, oh, I'm going to go into a confessional booth, and, and there the screen's going to open, and, and there's going to be this shadowy figure there, and he's going to say, you know, how long has it been since your last confession? And we think, well, confession is me just kind of spilling my guts, and i got to share all the bad things I've done in my life, and, and that's what it means to confess. But that actually is not the biblical idea of confession. The Greek word translated confess means to agree with, and in the context, to agree with God. A great passage of scripture, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you. But what you're doing when you're confessing is you're agreeing with God that what you have done is a sin. 
You see, in our culture, we don't agree with God. Oh, no, this isn't a sin. This isn't wrong. You can do that. No, no, no. God says it's wrong. And so I'm going to agree with God and say, yes, Lord, I have sinned according to what you have said. I agree with you it's wrong. And I'm asking you to forgive me because I realize I need forgiveness because I'm confessing this is wrong. I agree with you. So in a negative sense, we confess of like, yeah, I've done bad things. But what Paul is saying, hey, we need to confess, agree with God, something about Jesus. You see, God reveals through his word all about Jesus. And so ultimately, Paul is saying, you've got to confess, agree with God concerning who Jesus is, that he's God, that he became a man, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross for our sin, that he rose from the dead. Paul makes something very specific. He uses another word that would have been very important in that culture. Jesus is Lord. The Greek word translated Lord here means one who has complete control over a person to whom a person belongs, the master. Now at that time, there were basically only two people that you would have used this title for, and that would be God for the Jews, and pretty much for everyone else, the Roman emperor. Because those are the people who have complete control. Those are the ones that you would say, okay, they're the the master. They're the ones in control. And so they would use this term for those two. Now, the Jews, they they would refuse to use it for the emperor. No, he's not our master. God is our master. And so they would never use Lord for him. And it brought lots of problems to them because of it. Now, the Gentiles, they mainly used it for the emperor. But something else to understand is the Jew would never call Jesus Lord unless they truly believed that he was God, their Messiah. No, they wouldn't do that. No, no, no. There's only one Lord, and if Jesus isn't God, then he's not it. And so only Jews who came to the realization that Jesus is God, that he's my Savior, that he's my Messiah, those are the ones who would finally come to that place and say, yes, you are Lord. I'm making you master of my life. And a Gentile would never call Jesus Lord unless they understood who he was. Because now they were saying, you know what? The emperor is no longer Lord. Jesus is now Lord. And that was a huge decision to make and a big deal within that culture. So this word Lord that Paul uses is very significant. Because if someone calls Jesus Lord, he's giving Jesus the supreme place in his life. You are my master and I give my obedience to you. So when Paul says we must confess that Jesus is Lord, he's saying we have to agree with what God says about Jesus, who he is, and what he has done, and choose to make him Lord of our life. That's the first thing Paul says you need to do in order to be saved. The second thing he says is believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead. The Greek word here translated believe means to be persuaded of something to be confident that it's true, to place your trust in it. But we have to be confident. We have to be persuaded. We have to place our trust in the reality that God raised Jesus from the dead. This is an essential part of salvation. Now, some people come to this verse and they think, well, Paul, you're making clear what you must do to be saved. Well, Why did you leave out the cross? Well, Why did you didn't explain more about the crucifixion? Well, ultimately, it's implied here. Confession is agreeing with God about who Jesus is, which you know encompasses all of that. But the other side of the coin is, guess what? You can't rise from the dead unless you were killed. Uh, he was killed on the cross. He was crucified for us. That's the reason why he was risen. And so all of these things are encompassed in what we need to believe and confess in order to be saved. When those two things happen, Paul tells us, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Notice Paul emphasizing again, because the Jews listening to this would think, well, uh, one receives righteousness through the words of the law, and I do this and I'm saved. And Paul say, no, no, no. It's just a matter of trusting Christ, believing in him that ultimately makes us right and saves us, not our works. The third important thing concerning salvation I want you to take note of the salvation happens when a person confesses Jesus as Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead. You're not saved by what you do for God. You are saved by placing your faith in what he has done for you. You believe in that. You agree with that. You trust in that. And that is what saves you. 
Well, that's great. That's the message. But remember, the problem that the Jews had is, well, this message should really just be for us. So what is the scope of salvation? Who has God made this wonderful news available to? That's what Paul's going to reveal in these next verses, 11 through 13. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul starts off once again quoting the Old Testament. Notice he keeps coming back to the Old Testament. Why? Because he's speaking to Jews who valued what the Old Testament said. And so he keeps bringing it up. Hey, this has already been told to you. These are truths that you should be aware of. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The word shame here does not refer to a psychological shame, but rather to not being put to shame because of our sin at the judgment of Christ. In Revelation chapter 20, there's a very sobering picture of what's going to happen for those who stand before Jesus on the day of judgment. You have two different categories. You have the category of those who have placed their faith in Jesus and what will happen to them, and those who have not placed their faith in Jesus and what will happen to them. And the Bible says that every sin that we have committed is being recorded. Every thought that's a sin, every action that's a sin, and there are books that are being gathered together. For some of us, our pile of books is going to be bigger than others, but we have that. It's being recorded. And the Bible says, for those who have not accepted Jesus, that the things written in the books, they're going to be judged by. Now imagine on the day of judgment, the shame that would come to you if everything that you've ever thought, everything that you've ever done, was proclaimed. Imagine now, if every thought in your mind automatically went up on your Facebook page that was available to everyone. I mean, would you like that? Would you want that? Would you want everyone to see? But in the day of judgment, for those who have not placed their faith in Christ, the shame that's going to come because of all that they have chosen to do, sinful in this life, is going to be immense. But there's another wonderful part of Revelation 20 that says, you know what, there's an extra book. There's the books of all the things that we have sinfully done and the record of that, but there's also the book of life. And for anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, their name is written in the book of life, and therefore they will not be judged for all the things that they have done. That doesn't have to be read. That doesn't have to be dealt with. Why? Because Jesus took our shame. He took the sin. He took the punishment so that we don't have to have that judgment upon us. So Paul's saying, hey, Whoever believes on him, they will not be put to shame. When the day of judgment comes, there won't be any shame because they believed in Jesus and they will be saved from the judgment that ultimately they deserve. But Paul wants to clarify, when I say whoever, let me make clear who I mean. There is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, the Jews thought there should be, and there was a distinction. Oh, no, 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 God loves us way differently than the Gentiles. We're the important ones. We're the called ones, not them. There's a distinction when it comes to salvation. And Paul's saying, no, there's not. God loves everyone. He's made salvation offered to whoever will respond. It's for Jews. It's for Gentiles. It's for whoever, everyone willing to confess that Jesus is Lord, willing to believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. It is offered to them. You know, we saw back in chapter 3, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile in their sinfulness. We're all guilty sinners. Well, now Paul is saying, you know what? But there's also no distinction between salvation. Since we're all guilty sinners in need of salvation, we all receive it in the same way, and God has offered it to everyone. The Jews missed the scope of who God wanted to save. They thought it was just for them, and Paul says, no, actually, it's for anyone who's willing to put their trust in Jesus. The fourth important thing concerning salvation that I want you to take note of is salvation is available to whoever believes on Jesus and calls on the name of the Lord. Since God has made salvation available to anyone who's willing to respond, what he shares next now is the logical response to that. Uh, if it's available to everyone, now he brings up the need to preach 
salvation. In verses 14 and 15. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Since calling on the name of the Lord, believing in Jesus Christ, saves people, Paul shares the necessity of preaching the gospel, and he asks several questions. And he poses these questions to show us the importance of getting the good news of the gospel out to people who don't know it. Paul asks, how then shall they call on Jesus in whom they have not believed? If someone doesn't believe in Jesus, they're surely not going to call on him and accept him into their life and receive salvation. And how shall they believe in Jesus if they haven't heard about him? You can't believe in someone you've never heard of. And how shall they hear about Jesus without a preacher coming to them and telling them about Jesus? People aren't going to hear unless someone's willing to go and proclaim the message of the gospel. And how shall those people preach unless they're sent? They need to be sent out with a mission to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. You know what? God has sent every believer out. He said to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone. So Paul is saying if preachers of the gospel are not sent out, they won't go. If they don't go and preach the gospel, people won't hear the gospel. If people don't hear the gospel, no one's going to believe in Jesus. And if people don't believe in Jesus, they can't get saved. So he's saying, hey, it's available to everyone, but that's a mute point if no one hears it. Anyone in the world can come to a place where they hear the gospel, and if they're willing to place their faith in Jesus, they will be saved. But Paul is now saying, we got to get it out there. If anyone can receive it, then we need to go to the ends of the earth to proclaim it. We need to make sure that people hear it as it is written. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. When someone goes to people who haven't heard the gospel and preaches the gospel of peace, it brings glad tidings of good things. You know, Isaiah is the one that Paul is quoting here. And I think it's interesting that he says glad tidings of good things because there's no way that he's referencing the mindset that the Jews of this day had, which was, oh, we earn righteousness through the works of the law. That's not glad tidings of good things. Oh, yeah, you know, in order to be saved, you kind of work and do this and this and this. Man, that's not a good message. That's not glad tidings. He's referencing the glad tidings of good things of the fact of what God would do for us and that all we need to do is place our faith in that. But the reason these people that Isaiah speaks of have beautiful feet is because it's their feet that are taking them with the good news of the gospel. Oh, your feet brought you here with this wonderful message and your feet are beautiful because you were willing to come to us with this wonderful news. Imagine if you just inherited $10 million from a, a distant relative that you lost touch with decades ago. And, well, that would be great news. I'm sure all of us would want to hear today, you now have $10 million that has been given to you. But what if no one ever told you? The, the money's just sitting in a bank account. It's yours. It's got your name on it. It's available to you. But no one ever contacted you. No one ever told you. No one ever shared the good news. And so it's there. It's available. If you actually heard about it, you would run to it and be like, yes, I desperately want that money. Give it to me now. But no one told you. And so you are not accessing that wonderful blessing because you don't even know about it. People can't hear the good news unless we go out and tell them. And since the good news is for everybody, the church has been called to go into all the world to reach everybody. The fifth important thing concerning salvation I want you to take note of is God has called us to preach the gospel so that people can hear it and believe in Jesus for salvation. You know, we live in a country that has millions of people who haven't believed in the gospel. And they're not going to until someone comes and tells them. They're going to hear it. And the one that God has given the responsibility to share it is us as Christians. 
Now, you could say, you know what, Lord, you probably would have been better off if you chose angels or you chose some other method of communicating the gospel. They would be more faithful than we are. But God says, no, I've chosen the church. I've chosen those who put their trust in me. I want to use them as my mouthpiece. I send them out. And that's the calling for each one of us. It's not for me as a pastor or for a missionary. It's for every person who has placed their faith in Jesus. We've all been called to proclaim this good news message. And each one of us have people in our lives that don't know the gospel, don't know the truth, don't know Jesus Christ. And we have the good news that, if we share it with them, gives them the opportunity to receive it. There's no guarantee they will, but I can guarantee you this, they're not going to receive anything they don't hear. We have to share it with them before they're ever even going to know about it. And then once they hear it, then it's on them to make a choice of whether or not they'll receive it. But it's our job to make sure the message goes out. On June 7th, a group of us are going to Kenya. As a church, we are sending this group out. Why? Because we want to go to a village that has not heard the gospel to proclaim it. Because we want them to hear the good news and we want to see them come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ to accept what he's done. Every month we go out to the park here. Why? For the purpose of sharing the gospel, getting out the good news. Why? We want to see people accept it. That's up to them, but it's up to us to get the news out. They'll never accept what they don't hear, and so we are the ones called to proclaim the message. Now those Israelites who listen to what Paul is sharing here, they would have some issues, some problems, and so Paul's going to end this letter sharing some objections that they would have had or answering some objections they would have had by using uh, their own scriptures. Um, Verses 16 and 17 says this, But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Here's the first objection that Jews would have had. If salvation is so simple and available to all who trust in the person's work of Jesus Christ, then why are so many Jews not obeying the gospel? Paul's answer is this. Israel's disbelief was only to be expected because long ago Isaiah prophesied it would happen. In Isaiah 53.1, if you look at the whole chapter of Isaiah 53, it's a beautiful chapter of what the Messiah would suffer for us in order for us to be saved. And at the beginning of it, it says, Lord, who has believed our reports? He's bringing up this reality of the Jews are going to reject the one that I have sent to save them. And so Paul said, it's no shock to me that the nation of Israel as a whole has rejected the Messiah because God prophesied back in Isaiah, that this was going to be your response to the Messiah. But then he goes on to say, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Paul reveals something very important about faith. Well, how do we grow in it? How do we get faith? Faith comes by hearing the word of God and ultimately accepting it. Now, this is a great teaching in and of itself, but in the context of what Paul is sharing here is the problem with the nation of Israel is the Word of God has made things clear. You're just not hearing it. The Old Testament clearly pointed to Jesus, and there's 315 prophecies that he fulfilled. It's all clearly there. Your issue, the reason you don't have faith, is because you haven't heard and accepted the truth of God's Word, and now you're in this place of denying Jesus instead of placing your faith in Jesus. Verse 18 says this, But I say, they have not heard. Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Here's the second objection that Jews would have had. If hearing is so important, what if we never got the chance to hear? Paul's answer to this question real simply, you did get the chance to hear. He quotes Psalm 19.4, which says, Their sound has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Paul's making very clear the message has gone out. Paul can say, I myself have spoken to many of you and shared the good news of the gospel. It's not a matter of you haven't heard the news. That's not your problem. Your problem is you're not willing to accept it. I want you to think about this. Earlier I mentioned how horrible it will be if you inherited $10 million and no one ever told you the good news that you had it. But imagine if someone came to your door 
And he shared with you, hey, you know, your relative, I know you maybe not even remember him, but he died and, you know, he won the lottery before he did. He had all this money and he's left you $10 million. It's yours. He said, yeah, I don't believe that. I don't accept that. There's no way that he would do that for me. There's no way that that happened. And the guy says, no, no, no. All you have to do is go to this bank. There's an account there. The money's in there for you. It's yours. No, I don't believe it. I don't accept it. Get out of my house. How sad would that be? Even worse than before. I mean, now you heard it. You know the good news. You know what's available, but you won't accept it. You won't believe it. And what's now available to you, you don't get the blessing of. And that was Israel. God says, here, I just gave my life for you. I sacrificed myself for you. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior for you. You can be forgiven. You can have a relationship with me based on faith, not works. Isn't it wonderful? I don't believe that. I'm not going to accept that. And therefore, I'm not going to receive the blessings that come with it. Verse 19, 20. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Here's the third objection the Jews would have. So you're telling me that the Gentiles know about how to receive righteousness and salvation, but the Jews don't? Did Israel not know this would have been probably the hardest thing for the Jew to accept, that a, a Gentile could come to this knowledge and that they could not. And it would cause them to get angry. It would cause them to be jealous. And there's no way Gentiles, who were they were very prejudiced against, could have this privileged relationship with God and us not. And Paul answers this question by quoting both Moses and Isaiah. Moses said in Deuteronomy 32.21, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Once again, Paul brings them back to their own text. Hey, Moses, he already said, God is going to provoke you to anger and jealousy by another nation. Speaking of someone who are not Jews, Gentiles, that was already God's plan. He knew that he would choose them, and he knew in doing so, and giving them the opportunity to receive salvation, that that would make you angry, that would make you jealous. But the only reason you're angry and jealous is because you won't accept the truth. You won't accept Jesus, and you're upset that they have. But Isaiah says something even more bold that would have made them even more upset. I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask me. See, the Jews are like, oh, we seek God. We have the temple. We have the sacrificial system. We have the priest. We have the high priest. I mean, we seek him, and we want to do what he says, and we're trying to earn our way to his approval. And Isaiah is saying, you know what? God's going to be found by a group that doesn't even seek him. He's going to make himself manifest to those who don't even ask for him. And his grace is going to say, you know what? Here's this lost group of Gentiles who is clueless of my presence and existence for them and what I've done. I'm going to show myself to them. I'm going to make myself real to them. And they are going to respond to faith in Jesus Christ. This would have been another thing that would make the Jews very jealous and angry. But Paul concludes here with a verse that's a great transition coming into chapter 11, because chapter 9 we see God's sovereign ability to choose. Chapter 10 is man's responsibility to now respond. Chapter 11 is going to bring something else in there, but you kind of are left with, all right, the nation of Israel, for the most part, that they have chosen to reject Christ. Now, what's going to happen to them? But I want you to remember the kind of God that we serve, they serve, verse 21. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. You know, the, the, the latter part of this verse is the sad part, but the beginning is the encouraging part of what God is doing. The sad part is what the nation of Israel is doing. But what a beautiful picture of the character of God and his patience. He says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You know, if you read through the history of Israel, starting in the book of Genesis with Abraham, which has now lasted over 4,000 years, and you see, man, they rebelled against God far more than they ever worshipped him. Most of their kings were bad and led them into idol worship. There was this constant need for God to patiently endure 
with this group of people. But he said, you know what? My hands are stretched out. I'm ready to receive you. I want to. The problem being, you're a disobedient and contrary people. You won't come to me. We see the heart of this in Jesus as he was here on this earth. And what he shared as he's there in Jerusalem to the nation of Israel, Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus is saying, hey, my arms are open. I want to gather you together. I love you. I want this relationship with you. Well, why isn't it happening then? You were not willing. You wouldn't choose to accept what I've done for you, and so you have made it impossible for this relationship to happen because God doesn't force it on us. He's the God who sovereignly chose to make salvation available, but also sovereignly chose to give us a choice as to whether or not we will respond. The nation of Israel has chosen not to respond, chosen to reject Jesus, and so God patiently is waiting, arms stretched out, I'm available. Any who come to me, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, shall be saved. But you know what? That's just not the way that God views Israel. That's the way that God views all of humanity. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is speaking about God's return. Why are you waiting so long? Are you slack concerning your promise to come back? No, I am long-suffering. Why are you long-suffering? Why are you waiting? I'll tell you why I'm waiting. Because I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The heart of God is, I am patiently waiting for people to respond to me. I am patiently waiting for people to repent so they can be forgiven, so they can be saved. That's God's heart to the nation of Israel. That's God's heart to all, because all, whoever, is willing to call on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Because of that reality, those of us who have already accepted Christ, the challenge of this chapter for us is, hey, how are they going to hear unless we go? And that should be what we recognize. Hey, am I willing? Do I really care enough not only to pray for people's salvation, to actually be the mouthpiece of God and communicate the gospel to people who don't? God wants to use you. He wants to use me. And so often we look at mission trips and they're a great way to go and share the gospel. But you know what? If all we're willing to do is go to another country and do it, we've missed the reality of what God wants for us. He's like, yeah, but right here, what about now? What about in your family? What about in your neighborhood? What about at your work? What about at your school? I want to reach them too. Yeah, I love those people in Kenya. I love those people in Miramar. But I also love the people here in Pasadena. Are we willing to reach them and in Deer Park and the Fort and, and in Houston? God's saying, hey, I called you to do this. People are ready to receive it. They just need to hear it. And we're the mouthpiece that needs to give it to them. 